Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attention, attention, action this day. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Dunkirk uh, Week and a Bit special. Um, uh, James and I, James Holland and I, of course, um, we're trying to take us through without too much digression, though we failed miserably yesterday, um, uh, the, the events of the most important week in modern history. Let's go modern history. But, yeah, I think that's fair enough. You know, fair, fair, good, it's good the cap, modern yeah. stuff that... Let's be honest. Now the modern stuff matters more, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it's not like your brother scraping around in Thermopylae or somewhere. This is ah, it. Cares. This is I mean, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> who cares? You know, bunch of bloody Spartans. This is this is much more important. Um, but anyway, deal. so we're, we're, for me, Monday the twenty seventh of May is it's the yes. daddy of all days because this is yep. the closest, in my humble opinion, that Britain gets to losing the war. It's right. really fascinating. You know, so so this is the day that King Leopold decides of the Belgians decides that he's going to sue for an armistice. So suddenly yep. the Belgians are going to be out. Now the Belgians yep. are holding the whole north west flank of the northern bit of the of the pocket. So that's yep. going to have to be filled overnight when the yep. when the when the armistice comes into play early in the hours of the 28th. So that's got to be dealt with. Dunkirk is being absolutely hammered by bombers. Um yep. All along protecting this kind of sort of lozenge. It's, it basically looks a bit like a kind of ice lolly on its side, like a zoom yep. ice lolly. That's what it looks yep. like. Uh, and the southern flank is being held together by some pockets of defence, one of which is on this little hill that sticks out in the middle of nowhere, Castle. So yep. that is where the Germans start attacking this. And early in the morning, with the halt order lifted, that is when the panzers start going back into, yep. back into yep. action. Royal Navy ships, which have come overnight to um, Dunkirk, are now being shelled by yeah. the Germans on yeah, land. Because they're within artillery range. Yeah, they've turned the guns round yeah. from the kind of Panagale, from, from, yeah. from, from Graveline, and they're turning them on Dunkirk. So that is not a good start to the day for Churchill at 7.15am yeah. over his boiled egg and soldiers. Yeah. Um, at 9am, Bill Tennant, Captain Bill Tennant, reports to um, Admiral Ramsey, who is... Um, Commander-in-Chief of Dover Command, and he's got the response. Ramsey's got responsibility of looking after uh, Operation Dynamo. And and what Ramsey recognises is that he's going to need a first-class senior naval officer over the other side of the channel. So he sends... Yeah. Um, so he's re- asked Bill Tennant, who he knows is a very competent, very capable, highly experienced sailor, but also very good staff officer. He reports to um, to, to Ramsey. They have a, a conference in the... In the tunnels, there in the cliffs yep. at, at Dover, and Ramsey yep. says to him, "Look, you know, if you can get 40,000 men out, you know, you'll be doing well. But you need to get your ass over there now." Yeah. Um, he gets. Um, um, at that point, there is a eleven thirty in the morning. Is the first major uh, proper war cabinet, and Chamberlain, the ex prime minister, reports on the chief of staff's report a certain eventuality, and the search yeah. eventu- a certain eventuality is if the whole thing collapses and the Germans try an invasion. That is what they are dealing with at the War Cabinet that morning. You know, and and I I simply cannot think of a more gut-wrenching, heart-stopping, dead-weight-on-your-shoulders feeling than being one of the five men 
uh, in that war cabinet having to discuss seriously what would happen when yeah. the Germans invade. It's fascinating that it's Chamberlain, though, that's got that role, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's so interesting. I mean, it's a lot to do with the fact that he's still leader of the Conservative Party. He might not be, yeah. he might not be um, prime minister anymore, but that the Churchill's got him doing that, I think, is it's really interesting that, that, that obviously he, Churchill needs him close to him to carry, to carry the government, but must also rate, he must rate him and he must trust him, um, even though he's supplanted him. And it's a, it's a very, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's fascinating that he's in, that he's in there. Because you, you know, in modern politics, you'd think he'd, he'd, well, he'd have gone to do bye bye now, wouldn't he? Be on holiday. He'd, yeah. He'd have buggered off, wouldn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's not well either, really. So he's no, he's got he's cancer. He doesn't inside. know he's got cancer at this point. So that's yeah, another, yeah, that's another myth of darkest hour that he, he has no idea. Yeah. Uh, and it is this point in this meeting, having had this discussion on what we do when the Germans invade um, and, and when everything has gone absolutely pear-shaped, that Halifax brings up the fact that he's been having all these talks with Bastianini. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah and he yeah. says, look, Bastianini is prepared to kind of, you know, we can we can pursue the possibility of peace talks through the Italians. Yeah. And Churchill says, look, that's really not going to work. And, yeah. and Halifax says, look, obviously, if the terms aren't favourable, then... We discard them, but but we're in the creek. We're in a massive stew. Let's at least consider it. Yeah. Churchill again disagrees them, and they just park it for the time being. Uh, and the cabinet breaks up. They go off and do whatever they got to do. Attend to papers. You know, listen to reports. Yeah. Hastings yeah. Ismay has to um, uh, has to report to Churchill and all the rest of it. There's other kind of government yeah. matters that and updates that need to come in. Meanwhile, Bill Tennant has set off on HMS Wolfhound using the yep. Y route, the three routes that they use, all of which are, are, are a lot longer than... There's one that kind of goes yeah. up to the Dutch coast and dog legs back, that's a bit dangerous. There's another one that kind of goes south. There's another one that has to kind of go through the through the um, the minefields. They're all... Not, none of them are great, but they're and all of them are substantially longer than a yeah. direct sailing just route. to hop across the channel. Yeah, yeah. yeah they've yeah. got to go through yeah. mine, dodge minefields and all the rest of it. Yeah. So he gets going. Uh, and actually, an hour into his journey, he's attacked by Stukas on, on HMS Wolfhound. The Stukas come in and start, you know, bombs start falling all around it. But but he gets through it. Then at 4.30 is the second war cabinet. And this is the big one. This is yeah. the moment where reports are coming in. None of it is good. None yeah. of it is good at all. You know, I can report to you that, that you know, a senior naval officer is going, going to Dunkirk. You know, guns are firing on, on Dunkirk yeah. itself. Um, you know these routes aren't very very good um, we're you know we're expecting Dunkirk to be able to hold out for another 24 hours maybe 36 hours if we're yeah. lucky and at this point Halifax and you have to say you can understand where he's coming from goes yeah, yeah. listen you know I know you dismissed the talks with Bastianini but but they're there they're on the table why on earth don't we consider them and Churchill says because once you open the door ajar it blows wide open and there is no turning back the yeah. moment you even do this, you have put yourself in a position where you cannot come back from that. It's, it's all over. And yeah. at this point, Halifax loses his temper. And he says, yeah. you're impossible. You know, I do not understand what you're saying. This is absolutely ridiculous. And if you don't, you know, don't change your tune, I'm going to have to seriously consider my position. 
And what that means yeah. is I am threatening to resign. Now, you have to yeah. remember that Halifax is the most respected politician in the country. Well, he, he is known I, for having a clear head, a, a sound, whereas Churchill is not. Well, and also he is absolutely 100% establishment, isn't he? I mean, he's friends 100%. with the royal family. I mean... Uh, Key to uh, Buckingham Garden Palace. Ex exactly know, all Palace that, Garden. yeah. And, and, and were he not a Viscount, were he not in the Lords, he'd probably be Prime Minister. Yes. And uh, th there would have been zero obstacle to him in taking that job so so i mean it is it is interesting because it's an expanded war cabinet isn't it the 430 because um uh sinclair's there and uh they, they've got who's the leader of the liberals is, is there because yes. they, they obviously know they're gonna they're gonna need everyone on board for, for whatever whatever decision churchill yeah. knows he's gonna need everyone on board for whatever decision he's gonna have to make and and sinclair agrees with churchill doesn't he, he says you 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 we can't the moment, and it is this idea also that we're still allies with we're still allies with France. Right. So if we start trying to talk on a back channel to Italy, we undermine. The, 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 well, we look completely perfidious. We look we look absolutely hopeless. Yeah, we're totally untrustworthy. And what we're doing, what we need down the line is to be able to go to the Americans and say, for instance, and say, look, we're stand up guys and we behaved ourselves even when the even when the chips were really down. We didn't we didn't desert the French because obviously if you're evacuating, it does look awfully like you're deserting the French, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 it does. Terribly, it looks it looks terribly like that from yes. from a from a from a different perspective, which is exactly so, what I mean, they are doing. They would be Which doing. Is, well, exactly. It doesn't just so, look like so, it, it, it. They are. Well, well, it, well it, yeah, yeah, of course. But but so politically, what you've got to do is not offer a political a political wedge here for someone to go. What are you doing? And and I think you know, in a, in a strange way, this is this is what informs unconditional surrender later on in the yep. war, isn't it? Is that yes. There, there are yes. no deals. There are no back doors. There are no back channels. Although some Germans try, they always get nowhere in forty yes. forty five. Of course. With this because and this is. You know, the, the, this is the this moment is the germ of that idea. I think of that yeah. approach that if you even, like you say, if you even if you just open the door, it'll blow just a jar, it'll blow wide open. It's fa it's it, but but it's but what so fascinating in that meeting is is and this is the really really crucial thing, and this is why Darkest Hour is such a complete travesty. Chamberlain <laughs> sticks up, agrees with Churchill. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chamberlain says, actually, Edward, Lord Halifax. This is why we can't do this. And it's exactly yeah. the point you've just made. You know, how would that yeah. look to the French? We can't yeah. do this. And Churchill then says, look, let's all just take a breather and have a cup of tea. Edward, why don't you come with me into the garden? Because they're not in yeah. the cabinet war rooms. They don't. They never go into the cabinet war. The yeah. first cabinet that is held in the war rooms underneath is not till the 18th of July, 1940. So the whole of premise of Darkest yeah. Hour film is bollocks. Um, <laughs> anyway, so but they are at number 10, even though Chamberlain is still living in number 10. And, yeah. and Churchill is, is not. But they are the war cabinet is held at number 10. Churchill takes Halifax out into the garden at number 10 and they have a chat. And no yeah. one knows what was said. It's one of those things. We were talking about this the other day, weren't we, about, about threatening yeah. to reveal the truth about his Labrador. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, who but, knows but, what it was? Who knows what it was? It doesn't knows? matter. The point is... No, of course not, no. But the point is, the situation is diffused. The cabinet then breaks up. Um... While this conversation is going on, that is precisely the moment that the second Norfolk's headquarters company is overrun. They've run out of ammunition. They surrender to yeah. the Totenkopf and 101 of them are taken to Le Paradis, this farmyard in Le Paradis, which is just down the road from where the, the house where they've been holed up. They're put against yeah. the wall uh, and all of them are shot. Two managed to escape. 99 yeah. killed at that moment. So that is 
that is the world that you know that is the threat yeah that is what's got you know and that that is a yeah, tiny yeah. tiny thing of course compared to what's going to happen in the holocaust and all the rest of it yeah, so yeah. so when subsequently churchill does his talk and says you know if you know if we prevail we can return to sunday uplands but if we don't we will descend into a uh, into a new dark age made more sinister by the perver- yeah. perversions yeah. of modern science he's absolutely bang on the money yeah that's what we're talking about yeah just after that 10 minutes after those about the same time that those guys are being shot against the wall that's when wolfhound reaches dunkirk and tenant bill tenant arrives reports to um admiral abriel the french admiral in bastion 32 a bunker at dunkirk and they kind of start working out the plan what is really interesting is later on that night about 10 o'clock is the third war cabinet and that is nothing to do with talks of Bastianini or anything like that that is all about the Belgian surrender Uh, and what are they going to do about that Uh, and overnight what is happening to Gort also knows this Gort who's Field Marshal Lord Gort is obviously Commander-in-Chief of uh, the BEF he has asked Montgomery who is commander of the the third division to move 50 miles overnight and fill in the gap left by the by the Belgian armistice and that is carried out that night yeah. Also at the same time, so that is a that and that is a brilliantly executed operation, yeah, yeah, which so probably that's... only Montgomery could have done and his team. Well, and it's one of the one of the things that that, that sets him, him on the way. That sets him on the way. His, 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 uh, how well is how prepared his division is for that? Because he's and been rehearsing that. Uh, absolutely, uh, and you can say whatever yeah. you like about Monty, but that moment is brilliant. You know, he he is yeah. brilliant. He absolutely. Calm, clear-headed, well-organized staff work gets the yeah. job done, and yeah, it's yeah. brilliantly executed. Around the same time as the third cabinet's going on, and Monty's starting his his um, movement of third division, Bill Tennant moves up to the front and sees the East Mole, and sees that there is yeah. this wooden lattice mole, this jetty, this this pier that goes extends out, a, sort of you know over a mile out into um, out of the harbour. And he goes, oh, I wonder what would happen if we put a boat along here. And so he signals to HMS Wolfhound, the, the destroyer yep. that he's brought in on, um, and says, can yep. you send someone in? And they send in the Queen of the Channel, which is a cross-channel ferry. And it moors yep. up against the jetty and nothing happens. It barely creaks. <laughs> and they just think, holy moly, we've got a result here. You know, you yeah. can forget kind of trying to scrabble people into little ships, take them and ferry yeah. them out to the big ships out at sea. We can just, we can, we can, we can not just double back this. We can triple deck this yeah. uh, and yeah. stack them up and we can just follow yeah. them straight on and straight off. And also at that cabinet meeting is, is Duff Cooper for, for the Ministry of Information. Who yes. is there, who is there to talk about, to, he's told about what's going on and then he's told to think about what you're going to tell the public. That's because right. let's not forget the day before you've had a day of prayer. Everyone knows now that the BEF is needing to get out and he's told to lower expectations. He's told, in fact, to, to not really to not really let the public know what's going on um, until it's until it's clear whether Dynamo is going to be a success or a failure, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. That they're in they're, You know, we think of news management as a modern political uh, manifestation, but right in the jaws of this, they're all over that. They're all over th- trying to keep that in, you know, keep control of that information and expectation. Because after all, as you said, this is this is rock bottom. This is the day that the war could have been lost. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah. day. I really yeah. think it is. I th- I just think, God, you know, what what would have happened if that that. Afternoon, that four thirty war cabinet meeting had gone gone a different way. It's just and Churchill hadn't been able to persuade Halifax. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Then what? 
yeah. exactly. But anyway, so well, that's the end of end, end of the um, of the twenty seventh of Monday, the twenty seventh of May, nineteen forty. Um, <laughs> and of course, key to the whole Operation Dynamo is the Royal Navy, which is why we've got Steve Prince back, head of the Naval yes. Historical Branch, to give us a little bit of kind of background and perspective and kind of where we stand with the Royal Navy during that critical yeah. week. Brilliant. Achtung, achtung. Hello, dear listeners. I hope you've been enjoying the content James and I have been serving up this past year. If you have enjoyed it and you felt so inclined, could we ask you to consider voting for us in this year's podcast awards? There's a special award that's got nothing to do with juries and industry professionals. It's called the Listener's Award. You need to go to British Podcast Awards slash vote. Then put in We Have Ways and up we pop. Prove you're not a robot, you know you can do it, and make sure to confirm your vote in the email they sent you. Many thanks from me and James and everyone at the We Have Ways team. You know, where does the Royal Navy sit in the Second World War at this stage? You know, what is the impact of of the naval victory at um, at Norway? What does that have on subsequent operations at uh, Dunkirk? Because I've always kind of thought, well, what the hell are the Germans doing attacking Norway before France? Because if they get France, they'll just be able to walk into Norway. You don't have to have that hassle. You don't have to have that potential loss of resources, which they lose in in Norway. I think it'd be worth talking about that, don't you, Al? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Um, I, I mean, the... The thing is, is of all three of all the three services, after all, the Navy in peacetime is the one that's most sort of globally involved in a way that the the F, you know that the yeah. army never can the army can't go actually go round practice. It's it's not like the Cold War where there was an expectation of what would happen next and you were lined up to do it. You know, the army in the, the British army in peacetime has got this is wearing is wearing so many hats um, is uh, as an imperial sort of. Uh, not police force, not quite the right word, mm. but the, as the Imperial Army presence, and also is trying to simultaneously forget all about the First World War because it was so ghastly, and also learn the lessons from it. Um, uh, uh, you know, and it's having a sort of having a sort of wearing schizophrenic moment, if, to use the vernacular, in dealing with that. But the Navy is the thing that's kind of just carrying on being a global presence, doing it, doing its Royal Navy thing. And after all, you can practice sailing to a cape as quickly as possible in peacetime in a way that an army can't really actually gain yeah. experience of rapid deployment and stuff. Yeah. Would you agree with that? So, yeah. the, so the Navy sort of got the, the most, its sinews are the closest to being ready for war of yeah. the three services possibly. No, I think that's fair. Um, so the Navy, particularly, as you say, there's obviously the revulsion after the First World War. There's a certain amount of yeah. never again that develops uh, into war. So the Navy, you know, is the the senior service, the imperial service, um, particularly with the economic shocks of the 1930s, actually, the imperial economic ties become even more important. Uh, and, and the sort of the glue of the empire is the Royal Navy to tie it together. So that's so there are all sorts of debates about how many cruisers the Royal Navy needs. And they're all based on, right, if you've got so many on the Australian station and so many in the Med, what does that up, right. up to? There's a real kind of consensus about the Royal Navy. And so the Royal Navy does relatively well out of the limited amount of spending through the 20s and 30s. There's a view that the Navy is also uh, the defence of the nation. So as we know, it's only in the spring of 1939 that we actually agree we're going to send a second BEF to France. 
So, as you say, there is no really agreed game plan for the army until very shortly before the war. So the Navy knows it's going to have to kind of hold the ring. Um, And one of the things I think that's important for the Navy and the Air Force between the wars is there's a real political worry. Anything that gets you towards rearmament, you know, fine, that may have to be accepted in the 30s, Japan, Italy, Germany. But every political party is either desperately worried about or utterly opposed to conscription and any shadow of conscription. And if you expand the army very much, you very soon get to that. Hence the attraction, to some extent, of the Air Force and the Navy. The other thing, I think, is the Navy, the big platforms that you need, the aircraft carriers and the battleships, there's a four or five year lead time on. So while you can extemporise a certain amount of an army really quite quickly, particularly if you're, you know, if you've got lots of infantry battalions, you can kind of take a cadre out of one and generate another infantry battalion in six or nine months. You can't really do that with the major naval platforms. Um, So I think for all those reasons, it sort of stands in its favour. And then the Navy in 39, its job really is secure the Imperial and the trade routes. um, Because we know Britain's long-term advantage. And blockade Germany, absolutely. Um, So again, you know, we're very conscious of the record of the First World War. And this takes us to the Norway debate. So Germany is equally conscious that while they have good Central European resources. Um, They don't have much access to the world seas, either to get stuff for themselves or to seriously threaten our own trade and supply lines. So a lot of the attraction and the push from the German Navy says, if you could get Norway, that gives you a real sort of spout of access to the world seas. That means we could fundamentally change the scale of threat against Britain. Um, We'll be able to rage a real maritime war against them. Because previously, we basically put a minefield across the channel. And in 1918, we were constructing, mainly the US Navy, a minefield across the North Sea. So it's the idea that you could could basically pen in the Germans with things you do. So the corvettes that we all know, Compass Rose from the Cruel Sea, um, corvettes were designed to work in the North Sea. Because it was thought that must wow. be where your main battle would be against the German Navy. You wanted to stop them getting into the Atlantic in the first place. So you right. concentrate on that. So the German attack on Norway is driven partly by that. Um, and as you guys know, it's also to do with Germany's difficulty with industrial resources. So iron ore from Sweden, ball bearings and these sort of things. Yep. Uh, and there was a few that you know, would you secure them? And of course, they're quite right that Britain was seriously considering and was just on the edge of interfering with Norway and preventing the trade in an effort to try and, you know, choke the German economy. Uh, And that's what drives them to Norway. And I think Norway is really interesting, James, because kind of the Norwegian campaign, you're dead right. If France falls, other things, we think the Channel Islands went without a fight. Norway and Denmark would be surely relatively easy to pick off if you'd already got France. Yeah, they could literally just walk in, couldn't they? I mean... Yeah, almost certainly. So one of the things I think Norway shows us is the Germans are are not expecting quite the scale of success that they get in the summer of 1940. They might be hoping for it, but they can't kind of seriously expect it. So there is an element that the Germans are sort of themselves surprised with just how well it goes in those few weeks in May. You know, the strategic earthquake, Hitler has a an interest in saying, yeah, I knew it was going to happen all along. But I think an awful lot of Germans are shocked at just how well it goes. 
No, um, they're, they're, com- they're completely staggered. And, and But it's also what then trips Hitler into making further strategic decisions that... That, that don't add up, you know. That that he thinks he can do it again in against the Soviet Union, and he's and he's 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 quite wrong. And uh, because he's, I mean, James talks about this. We talked that about this an awful lot. Just the difference in, you know, uh, the, the 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 geographic space yeah. and the fact that French villages have petrol pumps in them, in the way that <laughs> there aren't any villages for, for for tens and you know scores of miles in in uh, Russian steppe, you know, or Ukrainian steppe. So, so I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, the strategic, you're right, the earthquake cuts both ways, doesn't it? In fact, it, it, yeah. it surprises everyone. Yeah, it, it's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it gives Germany, it's ironic, it set the seeds for Germany's defeat because it gives Hitler on such a high and he's, as far as he's concerned, effectively not finished the war in the West, but closed off any serious threat because he thinks even if Britain holds out, Britain will never be able to mount another invasion or an invasion back in. And that's sure. the thing that gives him the opportunity that ideologically, for all sorts of reasons, the war that he really wants to fight, which is the war against Russia for living room, for food supply access, yeah. for oil access in a big way. Because our maritime yeah. economy, our great strength, the vulnerabilities, it comes in ships you can sink. But we are able to draw on things like oil, 80% of the world's oil from all around the world. We either have imperial control or commercial interests or trade. Germany well, most, most oil that. comes from the, the two leading oil producers in, in, the, in the world in the Second World War uh, are, are Venezuela and the United States. And they're both the right side of the, you know, the, of, of the sea for us. You yes. know, it's... It, it, I mean, the other thing, of course, is that oil moves around the world today largely by ship, and it did in the 1940s largely by ship, which is something that the Germans don't have. So even if they do get into kind of the Caucasus or whatever, they're still going to have a massive problem of how to how to get it from A to B because there aren't pipelines or anything in those days. But just to go back to Norway, I mean, you know, because mm. Norway is a victory and defeat for Germany. You know, it's, it's, it's obviously it's a massive victory on land, as is, is, is Denmark. But it's a naval defeat, isn't it? And that has its ramifications for what follows in the following month. You know, I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the defeat of the, of, the, of the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, in April 1940 really has an effect on the ability of the Kriegsmarine to do much about the Dunkirk evacuation, doesn't it? I, I think it absolutely does. So the thing it does is effectively the German surface fleet... So the losses, the naval losses, if you like, British and German in the Norwegian campaign, they're very different in in which vessels and stuff. But they're sort of even over the course of the campaign. But the difference is that's half of the German surface fleet as opposed to about, you know, 5% of the Royal Navy. So the the impact is utterly kind of disproportionate. So they achieve the mission and achieve it spectacularly, you know, really successfully. Um, But they, they... that their ability to grow their navy is really, really hard hit by that. Um, because it's not just the ships, it's those long-term regular officers who in other navies and air forces yeah, yeah, yeah. will become those who operate, but then they're the ones who run the training programmes when you massively ramp up your numbers. And if you've taken those away, you've taken away sort of years and years of experience and judgment. And so it becomes... In the long run, you see that there are issues increasingly with U-boat crews, um, with people transferred and with reserve officers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and it also happens with with you know that, that there's uh, those terrible two months. I think it's um, it marched to, through to May 1941, where they lose the three leading U-boat aces. They they lose yeah. Shepka, Preen, um, uh, and Kretschmer. You know, yeah. they're just gone. They, they, they are yeah. gone forever. That that's it. Yeah. You've taken those three most experienced guys and taken them out yeah. of the equation, and they're that's completely irreplaceable. Kind of effectiveness of U-boats in terms of U-boats per day tonnage sunk. The graph is going down throughout the war. You know, the, the, the days when U-boats as individual boats were effective are in 1939-40. And one of the reasons That's they're effective so in 1939-40 is because a lot of the destroyers have either gone to Ramsey in the short term or are being held off the south coast through that summer into the winter of 1940 against invasion. That gives the Germans a bit of an opportunity. But as you say, the key thing is the Germans, that the, they have a virtually no navy to interfere with Dunkirk. And this is one of, I think, the issues with the Germans, fundamentally, is the British have all sorts of inter-service rivalries and you know, rivalries between the generals and this sort of thing. But in the end, they cooperate. And there's a Chiefs of Staffs Committee where the sailor, the general uh, and the airman all sit down and kind of thrash things out and have a bit of common purpose. In Germany, it's just not like that. It's all about a series of competing commanders and services trying to get to Hitler, trying to get the best possible deal or, you know, the Fuhrer said this and then run out and get some advantage with it. So I think there's no, there's very little German Navy and there was just no mindset of the German army to think, actually, what we need to do now is coordinate with the Navy. So it's the absolute opposite of what the British Royal Navy and the army, you know, through their training and service together, who are instinctively getting together under pressure at Dunkirk. That just doesn't even occur. I think to the various German high commanders, but that's a that's a product of of running a global empire where you know you need to take soldiers to you you've got to get Clive Clive into Montreal or whatever you know yeah, you, you know it's, it's as old as that it's yeah. it's as it's as as meshed together as that yeah and it, uh, you know the the air force the air force is the new kid on the block but has come out of the army anyway so uh, uh, they're all they are they are all inevitably tangled together as a result of imperial commitments whereas the germans if they're the descendant of the prussians are they either go west or they go east or they go south you know the, 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 their army just has three decisions to make mm. on the points of the compass and that and that's sort of it they, uh, and they don't have to they don't have to sail anywhere and be delivered anywhere or have their vittles brought to them yeah. Uh, by by another service, so they, they just, it's just not programmed into them at all. Yeah. And then you you layer in the way Hitler runs the Nazi state anyway, which is with with two people in all the top jobs. You know, even even the SS operating as as competition against yes, the army, absolutely. and you know, and so on. Yeah. It, 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 they're never going to do it, are they? It's, it's yeah. again, like you say before, the the, the the success of the success of May 1940 seeds seeds their um you know f their future failure yeah that, that just the simple way they embark on everything uh, can only really ever lead to it unraveling i think yeah. it's overconfidence and there's no checks and balances in their system and our system is kind of less spectacular in terms of perhaps innovation or complete failure it's somewhere more in the middle but the performance sort of is slowly going up. And in a crisis, people tend to stick together rather than thinking, right, who will get blamed in the inquiry afterwards? Who can I yeah, leave it to? Yeah, that's such a good point. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. That's such a good point. To, just to go back to the kind of the, the Royal Navy at Dunkirk in in that amazing week. I mean, of sort of proper warships, you've got forty one destroyers. That 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 that's the sort of the biggest component component. You know, you sort of think about Wolfhound, Icarus, Verity. You know, the guys who are commanding these ships, they're they're all super good, aren't they? I mean, you know, there's not there's not a weak link there, is there? I mean, the, the, all of them are professionals. They all know absolutely what they've got to do. All of them kind of step up, don't they, in that week? Yes. Yeah, I think that's universally true. And that they're, they're all regulars. And there's it's a that after the First World War where you had a contraction of the services, so you have a real kind of richness of professionals who are there. Um, lots right. and lots of sea time, uh, lots and lots of experience right. that just allows them. It, it's the simple things like, you know, really congested water working in that. And simultaneously, mm. how do you cope with evading an air attack without going aground? Um, and a lot of yeah. that, you know, yeah. really, really sort of deep professionalism that you need to get you there. So, Steve, if you're a, if you're a destroyer captain at, uh, on Operation Dynamo, I mean, you're going to have... What fifteen years in the navy at the at minimum? Oh yeah, I mean 10? probably because 20? you're joining up pretty young. So actually, yeah, you're looking more like twenty for most of these guys. So, so and in um, that time, you've served in the Mediterranean Fleet, haven't you? You've been out on probably in the Far East, yeah. at a Far East station at some point. And all your officers were experienced from the First World War as well. So you're you're yeah. you're going into a culture that's just done a war as well. So the 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 the, the sort of experience goes with that talent as well. So they use this phrase, SQUEP, suitably qualified and experienced personnel is the catchphrase <laughs> to go with stuff. That's great. Um, Two fantastic acronyms we've had, JG <laughs> Steve. That's just brilliant. And the sort of the literal depth of the SQUEP in these people is phenomenal. And they've been through, as you said, a very careful training programme. Most of the officers will have joined up at 14 at Dartmouth. So they've done sort of yeah, seamanship yeah, yeah, yeah. from being children. They've done time on cruisers, destroyers, battleships. Yeah. They'll have been rotated around the fleet. They'll have done their their staff courses at Greenwich. So whereas I think the German armed forces have, you know, probably the edge on the kind of innovation and expansion element um, at that kind of tactical level, good at fighting, you know, and all the things you've talked about, good at massing a kind of combined arms battle that sort of thing. What you've got is a real leavening across, I think, all the British armed forces of that, you know, essential core professional competencies that keep the BEF in existence as formations in the large part that allow the destroyers to come and do these unexpected jobs in unexpected conditions. Um, And that also, of course, put the Royal Air Force over Dunkirk it, on a large scale. So again, it is intimately tri-service and the ships often aren't seeing it. But of course, one of the key things is German attacks are often being broken up by Spitfires. So the destroyer can cope with an attack from two or three uncoordinated aircraft in a way that it would find much more difficult if it was a dozen carefully coordinated aircraft coming at them. So every yeah. every element is contributing. I suppose that the, the but, but the point about the navy is is when we think of Britain at the start of the Second World War, we kind of think they're kind of not quite up to it. But that's because we we're so land centric, isn't it? You know, and our total outlook is about it's about the army is your your metric by which you judge 
the kind of performance of one's armed forces. But actually, because we're an island nation, because we've got the empire and the rest of it, actually, the metric for Britain really absolutely has to take into account the air force and the, and the navy. And in the navy, we are really, really good, aren't we, Britain? I mean, Britain, the Royal Navy is, is really incredibly professional, incredibly slick, lots of experience, you know, well-equipped. There's kind of not much to kind of sort of worry about on that front, is there? I mean, overall, absolutely. You know, I, we've got our blind spots like everybody else. So uh, obviously, as you know, te- one of the things with, say, aircraft is we go into the war without as much defence or offence for aircraft for the Navy as you might want. But that's partly because even three or four years before the war, aircraft didn't have the performance. As you know, it's only this this sort of rapid waterfall of where aircraft suddenly increase their performance as several different, you know, stress metal and engine technologies kind of all together. But again, the Royal Navy are operating the largest number of aircraft carriers of any Navy at the start of the war. Um, we've got ASDIC, which isn't as good as we would hope for as the battle goes on, but we learn to adapt it and bring radar and this sort of thing. Uh, our anti-aircraft mm-hmm. gunnery isn't quite as good as we would hope because it's that's one of those things really hard to practice in peacetime. But again, that is adapted kind of quite quickly. Um, so I think overall, its performance and its ability to adapt is really kind of impressive. And to bring in large numbers of you know, merchant navy or normal civilians in um, who are commanding ships, you know, three or four years after they've been normal civilians um, and achieving quite incredible results. Well, Steve, that's absolutely fantastic. What I I always love about our conversation, Steve, is you always, there's never a conversation I have with you about Second World War where I don't suddenly think that's a perspective I've never thought of before. That's the yeah, great thing about the Second great. World War as a topic. There's just yeah. endless stuff and yeah. interesting <laughs> connections. <laughs> stuff yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly yeah. as you like. Stuff and stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>